Well, welcome to church. I'm glad you're here this morning. If you're a guest with us, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors on staff and it's just an honor to get to host you and your families this weekend. These are the moments in our services where we come around the scriptures. We believe here at Calvary that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe that it is relevant for us today, just as relevant when it was written, just as relevant today. And we look to these moments as a community to come around the scriptures, to learn more of who Jesus is, to learn more of who God is, to learn more how to respond with our lives to the saving message of Jesus Christ, to learn to walk with his spirit each and every day. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm just gonna invite you to grab them while you're remaining standing. We're gonna dive into a new series today. There is a King. And we're gonna begin right here at the, the beginning of the Gospel of John, John chapter one. And the word of the Lord would say to this, to us today. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Moving down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time of worship. We now move into this time where we look to your word. Father, speak to us, encourage us, draw us close to this reality and the truth of the scriptures that were before us. And Father, we pray that as we engage in this time and we engage in this moment, that you would truly reveal yourself to us. We thank you for what you've already done and we believe you have so much more planned. So speak to us today, God. Encourage us today. We love you, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Recently, we had some friends over to our house and my daughter had opened her, her little kid's Bible. And so our, our friends asked Astoria a question. They said, Astoria, do you know do you know the story of Adam and Eve? And my daughter looked at them and she said, well, yes, I do. It's the story with the poison apple. I thought, well, I mean, kind of. I mean, they're, you know, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yes, there was fruit that was eaten. Poison apple, that might be a little bit of a stretch, but we'll go, she's four years old. Well, you know, we'll let it go. Then a few weeks later, a story went up to one of our friends and she said, hey, Candace, do you know that Jesus died on the cross? And Candace goes, you know what? A story, yes. And did you know that he came back to life? And Astoria thought for a moment. She said, without a true love's kiss? <laughs> See, it was in that moment that I realized something. Something is informing my daughter's understanding of things. And I think they're called Disney princesses. <laughs> See, the, the, the poison apple, that's Snow White. Or, or dying and then being woken up by true love's kiss, that's Snow White. It's, you know, Sleeping Beauty. It's, there's a lot of kissing going on in Disney movies. Kissing frogs, I mean, all sorts of stuff. But... What I began to think through is that reality that there's something informing my daughter's understanding of things. 
And I need to be aware of that as a father. Makes me think about the fact that we've been watching Star Wars recently and she's probably gonna think that, you know, the Holy Spirit is the force or something like that. Or <laughs> Lord Jesus, Lord Vader, they're kind of one of the same. It's like, no, sweetheart, they're not. But I want you to think about that for just a moment. That what is around you is informing you. That the world around you is informing you. And what we need to realize as human beings and individuals in this place is that what informs you will ultimately begin to form who you are. It will begin to to form you. So what around you is informing you? I mean, let's just think about the culture in which we live in. How has culture informed your understanding of maybe something like the meaning of life or your purpose in life or how to experience fulfillment as a human being? How has the world's way of thinking affected your way of thinking? How has, what is the role of culture around you? How has it played into who you are becoming? How has society informed you? and influenced your faith or lack thereof? Have you thought recently about how the culture around you has maybe informed your understanding of God or your understanding of the person of Jesus? For those of you who believe in Jesus, have you thought about how the ideologies around you might be affecting the way that you follow after Jesus? Or maybe you are here and you once believed in God you once believed in Jesus. You once believed in his, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But now you find yourself, maybe you're unsure. You're confused. And how might the culture around you, how has it maybe played into that confusion? See, the times that we live in are relatively spiritually disorienting. It's a difficult time and and much of the world has shifted and much of the world has changed and what we have to understand, those of us who profess faith in Christ, is how without maybe even realizing it has current cultural ideologies and systems and beliefs informed you and has now formed you. And how are these ideologies informing your kids? and your friends, and your neighbors, and your grandkids, and the community around you. How have they informed and how are they affecting even the church? You see, society has changed a lot throughout the years. Charles Taylor wrote a book called The Secular Age. And in this book, he made this statement. He says, why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God, say in 1500 in our Western society, While in 2000, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable. What has happened in the past 500 years that has maybe led to a a time where a lot of people believed in God, believed in some type of transcendent being, some type of sacred order to align their lives with. But now we find ourselves in a culture and in a time that mostly rejects even that concept or that idea. Philip Reef was a sociologist and he, he did some work around this idea. 
And he looked at culture over time and he divided it into three categories that he was able to kind of process through as he looked at what cultures were giving themselves to. He began by talking about what a culture one. This is like an ancient society. Think about maybe ancient Egypt or Mesopotamia. And he describes those cultures, they were characterized by a variety of myths that grounded and justified their cultures through something that transcends the immediate present. That those cultures were accountable to something. It's not that there was one God, there was actually many gods. But these many gods that people put their their trust into, so to speak, would begin to help them parse out how to find meaning and purpose in life, would give them some type of form of direction. And then culture one began to shift into what became culture two. Culture two was characterized not by fate of many gods, but by faith in a God. Think about religions like Judaism and Christianity and Islam. These are great examples or of religions that had cultural codes and they were rooted in a belief in a specific divine and sovereign being who stands over and above creation and to whom all creatures are ultimately accountable. See, first and second cultures, they were similar in that both set their social order upon deeper, even sacred things. And then culture two shifted into culture three, which is where we find ourselves today. Third cultures are characterized by their rejection of a sacred order. For third cultures, there's nothing beyond this world by which culture can be justified. Cultures one and two, they sought to discover meaning, purpose, and fulfillment vertically and from something above. Where culture three rejects the vertical in favor of constructing meaning, purpose, fulfillment horizontally and below. Years ago, Life Magazine ran a a cover article. What was the meaning of life? They asked a, a number of different people. One of the individuals that they asked was evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Good. The question was, what is the meaning of life? And here was his response. And it is a very, it's a very telling response from someone who has lived into this third culture ideology. He says, we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exist. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and it is exhilarating. We cannot read the meaning of our life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct these answers ourselves. From our own wisdom and ethical sense, there is no other way. Culture three, society shifts from faith in God to faith in human potential. Culture three would tell you that there is no God to discover. There is no sacred order to align with. Nothing beyond this world for which you are to strive and that it is your own individual personal responsibility to construct meaning, fulfillment, and satisfaction for your life. So in a culture three that rejects God, what would the process of constructing meaning even look like? I mean, on one hand, we we attempt to maybe construct a sense of meaning through things like science, politics, technology, moral freedom. 
but also it's, it's therapeutic. Acquire good feelings. That'll give me a sense of meaning and purpose. It's experiential. If I can just acquire enough good experiences, then I can acquire good feelings and then I will feel a sense of meaning and purpose. And it's consumeristic. Acquire high value possessions. So basically what it comes down to is your purpose in life is finding happiness. And you can do this through a number of things, but primarily let's, let's get some good feelings based upon good experiences. Let's, let's get some good stuff and then we will feel a sense of purpose. Now to be clear, I'm not saying that feeling good is wrong or bad. I'm not saying that good experiences are wrong or bad. I'm not saying that possessions are wrong or bad. I just wanna make a point that when constructing meaning and purpose, when establishing what is the ultimate pursuit of your life, might there be something more? I mean, let's just stop and ask the question, how is this life script working for everybody? Now, here's the thing. When life is good, this script is okay. When your health is good, when your marriage is good, when you're happy in your marriage, when your kids are making good decisions, when your job is good, when your portfolio is good, when your finances are well, when you can buy the things, go on the trips, do all the stuff, when everything looks perfect in life, this life script actually does a decent job of at least providing some sense of meaning. But if life must be perfect to be meaningful, doesn't that seem like a very fragile life construct? I mean, we have to be able to see the cracks in this way of constructing meaning and purpose. Because what happens when things go wrong? What happens when you lose your job? What happens when your finances are not what they once were? What happens when your marriage ends because of infidelity? What happens when your kids cannot seem to get out of their own way? What happens when the politician that you thought would win does not win? And what happens when things start to go bad on a larger scale, on a global scale? I want to read you this. This was written in 2019 by an author and pastor named Mark Sayers. And I want to read this to you because it seems almost prophetic for where we are right now. Speaking of the, the secular life script, he goes, it's, it's not as secure as it may seem. If major war broke out between great powers such as Russia, China, India, and the U.S. and NATO forces, a threat that many experts agree is increasing, our world and our lives would be radically altered. If we endured a global flu pandemic, okay, Mark, like the one in the early part of the 20th century that killed millions of people across the world, how we view and process our personal potentials and possibilities would be deeply shaken. Do you feel a sense of, of being shaken? Do you sense it in the people around you, in your families, and in your neighborhoods, in your workspaces? There's this, there's this uneasiness that humanity has right now. And it's interesting because we're starting to see the cracks. Even just this past week, 
I remember seeing a couple of videos on, on Instagram. You know, we're in this really unique moment with what's taking place in Ukraine right now. And the interesting thing is this secular life script does not know what to do with moments like this. And I saw these two clips and I want to show you them because I think it depicts this perfectly. Let's watch this together. And a little bit of chicken fry. Cold beer on a Friday night. A pair of jeans that fit just right. 50,000 Ukrainians will be dead or wounded yeah. and that this is going to start a humanitarian crisis, a refugee crisis in Europe. We're talking yeah. about 5 million people yeah. that, that are going to be displaced. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear what is going to happen. Yeah. Well, I'm scared of what's going to happen in, in Western Europe, too. Yeah. Huh. You know, you just you plan a trip. You want to go there. I want to go to Italy for four years. I haven't been able to make it because of of uh, the pandemic. And now this, you know, it's, yeah. it's like who's going to what's going to happen there? Yeah. <laughs> now, here's the deal. OK, get the laughter out, all of that. I don't, I'm not, her name's Joe, right? I'm not trying to make fun of her, Joy. But can't you just sense it in her? I mean, she doesn't even realize, like as she's sitting here, she's on national television and she doesn't even realize that how she, what she's communicating is that I'm most bummed because I can't go on vacation. Because see, I need this experience because I need to feel feelings of feeling good because this is the life script that I am chasing after. I mean, the clip before, here we're watching about this travesty that is taking place in Ukraine, but oh, by the way, make sure you get some wings, drink some beer and buy a new pair of pants and you can even shake your butt a little. Now here's the deal. When we see stuff like this, we have to begin to realize that ain't working. Because that way of looking at things, culture three, the secular life script, it does not know what to do with pain. It doesn't know what to do with suffering or feelings of, of frustration or sadness or failure. And which is why there are so many in this room and so many around you that are anxious and you're worried and you're confused. Now, I hope some of you in this room right now are, are starting to think, please tell me there's something more. Can we get to that part now? Or please remind me that there is something more. Free me from this belief that I must construct my own meaning and purpose in life because I am tired and I am worn out and I am what you described. I'm anxious. I'm worried. I'm confused. Tell me there is something greater. Tell me there is something more. Is there something more? And the reality is, yes, there is something more. The disciple John, he believed that there was something more. And to lay it out for us, he begins his gospel, his proclamation of good news with these words, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. 
In the beginning, this is familiar language to us. It reminds us of, of the Genesis account of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1 starts with the moment of creation and moves through the creation of humanity. John 1 starts with the beginning of creation and contemplates eternity's past. In Genesis, the writer Moses looks forward from creation. John looks backwards and says that even before creation, the word was. Before the creation of the world, there was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now John is writing to two different audiences at this time. He's writing to a Jewish audience and a Greek audience. He's writing in Greek. And so what he does is he uses this term, the word. And he does so very intentionally because the word, or in Greek, logos, it held both cultural and philosophical weight for both a Jewish reader and a Greek reader. The term logos for, for the Jewish person reading it means that which is spoken, a statement, a speech. In Jewish translations of the Old Testament into Aramaic, this term logos was often used for God. But then also in Greek intellectual circles, Logos was used to denote the controlling reason of the universe, which gave meaning to all things. Ancient Greek philosophers discussed about a logos, a spiritual cosmic order behind the material universe. See, what the Greek philosophers believed is that if you could discern what the logos was, you would be able to determine the reason and the meaning of life. So John begins his gospel with the thought that, yes, there is a Logos. And he is saying both to his Jewish and his Greek readers, you are correct in your thinking. There is a Logos. There is a sacred order. There is a transcendent and a divine reality for which you may find life if you were to align to it. That there is a reason and a meaning for life to be discovered. I love pastor and author Daryl Johnson. He paraphrases John 1.1 like this. In the beginning was the something more. And the something more was with God. And the something more was God. But see, for you Jews, the Logos is going to look differently than you expected. And for the Greek readers, it's going to absolutely look different than what you expected. And in verse 2, we begin to see a hint as to what is this Logos, what is this word? Verse two, John says, he was in the beginning with God. He, so the Logos is a person, yes. And no one could have imagined this, but understanding this is essential for us. Yes, there is a Logos. Yes, there is something more to align with, but it is not just something, it is someone. It is not some cosmic reasoning. It is a person. And in this person, verse three, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. The word who is Jesus is the unique manifestation of God. And he was already continuously in existence when the world was created. And he, Jesus, was part of the creation process. 
So as we kick off this series, There is a King, what we need to understand is this point. There is a Logos. There is something to align with, but it's not just something, it is someone. What this means for us is really good news because you don't have to strive to, to try to construct meaning and purpose for your life. And if you've been doing that for years and for years, what you've began to realize, especially in the last few years, is that that life script does not work. Because life is not perfect. Life is difficult. There will be times where you will struggle with health problems. There will be times where you will struggle financially. There will be times where your kids will not make the decisions that you want them to make. And in that moment, you have to believe and understand that there is a logos. There is something divine that transcends this world and you need to align your life with it so you can do what? So you can find life. So you can experience God's goodness and his wholeness. Verse four, in him, in Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So if there is a logos, if there is a divine reality to align with, if there is something more and that something is Jesus Christ, then what is our response to that? And I just wanna quickly give us four responses as we begin this series together. And response number one is quite simple. It's to believe in him. You have to believe in him. You have to believe that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. You have to believe that God did create humanity with a design and with a purpose. You have to realize and come to the conclusion that all of humanity has fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. You have to realize that you do need a savior. You need something more because you could not pay the penalty for sin. I cannot pay the penalty for sin, but there is something more. There is someone who could, and his name was Jesus Christ. And you need to put your faith and you need to believe in him. It starts there. For God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave his only son. That who would ever believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life is not just an everlasting life. It's, it's an eternal quality that even can begin right now. We need to believe in him. Not only do we need to believe in him, we need to receive from him. There is new life on offer, friends. And we need to receive that new life. Paul talked about this, this new life. He said these words. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you put your faith in Jesus, you begin to receive this new identity he has. That is really good news for us because that means that no matter what has happened in the past, you don't have to be defined by that any longer. That the wrongs that have been done, the decisions that you have made, the things that you have done to maybe rattle your families or rattle your community, whatever things have transpired, we can go to Jesus and say, I confess, I repent, forgive me, wash me new right now. 
Friends, we need to receive this beautiful life that we have in Jesus Christ. Now here is the reality. We believe in him, we receive from him. But oftentimes at this point, we don't move on past that. In fact, we usually will believe in him, we'll receive from him, and then we'll go right back to the life script that we were working from before. But see, we are called not just to believe in him and to receive from him, we are called to follow him. We are called to follow the person of Jesus. You know, all throughout the gospels, you go through Matthew and you see the Sermon on the Mount, you look at the life and the teachings of Jesus, which we're gonna do in the midst of this series, and you realize that Jesus showcases how life in the kingdom of God is meant to be lived. But many of us, we like to believe in Jesus, we love the idea of the free gift of salvation, but we don't want to humbly submit our wants and our desires at the foot of the cross to actually follow him. Which is why Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you're gonna have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. There's gonna be a letting go. There's gonna be a restructuring of things. There's gonna be that reality to say, you know what? I realize that my pursuit of meaning and purpose by just feeling good and acquiring things and trusting in this and trusting in that, that's not gonna do it. So Father, I lay that down and I commit to walking after you, practicing your way, reorchestrating my life around the realities of one who is fully submitted to the person of Jesus. So we believe in him, we, we receive from him, we follow him, and then we are to be on mission with him. Before Jesus ascended, after his resurrection, he says these words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Friends, we are now called to be on mission with Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And then he tells us to do what? Go and do what? He did not say go and make converts, by the way. He said go and make disciples. And that is something that moves beyond just believing in him and receiving from him. To, to be a disciple of Jesus means you are actively following him, surrendering your life, giving up your wants and your desires to be able to fully receive the life in which he has called you to. That's called discipleship. And one of the issues in the church right now is called non-discipleship. We love the idea of Jesus. We love the idea of new life. We love the idea of heaven, but we don't wanna fully submit to him now. But there are things that God wants us to do right now that needs you to become a fully devoted disciple. At the end of that, he says, what? Teaching them to do what? To obey all that I've commanded. Do you realize that following the way of Jesus means that there are certain ways that we have to be obedient? Why is obedience not important for us any longer? Why don't we feel this drive and this desire that we should walk in righteousness, that we should walk in holiness? 
What made the church in the West think that that for some reason doesn't apply to us? We're missing out. And I love what one pastor would say. When you fully give your life to Jesus, when you start sacrificing the things that you once lived out, when you start giving things up, here's what he says. It feels like starving at first, but ultimately it becomes feasting. The life on offer here is beyond anything that you could ever imagine. So as we engage in this series, may we believe in him with all of our heart and may we receive from him and may we commit to following him and may we commit to being on mission with him because there is a king and his name is Jesus. And it is time that the church started acting like they believe that to be true. These are not words on a cool wall. These are actually the essence of what we are called to as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are called to be invited into this work and into this mission. And the world that is chasing after this secular life script desperately needs the church to live out a different alternative because they're tired and they're worn out and they're anxious and they need to know that there is something more and there is and his name is Jesus Christ. In just a moment, the team's gonna come back out. But I want, you to, I want you to listen to this critique of the church and Christians from an agnostic author. He says, there seems little point in a religion which is merely a weekly social event. Apart, of course, from the normal pleasures of a weekly social event. As opposed to one which tells you exactly how to live which colors and stains everything. What is the point of faith unless you and it are serious? Seriously serious. Unless your religion fills, directs, stains, and sustains your life. Friends, it's time to get serious. Jesus must fill, direct, and sustain our life. See, this series is about declaring that there is a king and his name is Jesus. This series is about believing in him, receiving from him, following after him, and being on mission with him. It's a series about discovering or rediscovering discipleship, a series about accepting an invitation to a journey to discover and rediscover the beauty of Jesus, the reality of his kingship and the kingdom of God. The series is about becoming the people God has called us to be. But it will take you laying down your personal autonomy at the foot of the cross. It's going to take you giving the whole of your life. It's going to cost you something. Are you willing to risk the things of the world to fully give yourself to the person of Jesus? Are you willing to lift your hands up and lay your whole life down? And I want to, for just a moment before we stand and sing, I want you to think about that. Are you willing to lift your hands up and lay your whole life down? Let's ponder this together. And then when you feel ready, you can stand to your feet and we'll respond and then I'll come close this out. Let's sit together.